Our scripture passage for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In her introductory essay for a poetry anthology, Evan Boland tells the story of the first time hearing the poem Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright by William Blake. She was six years old in the comfort of her living room, and the timbre of her father's voice spoke the poem. The same voice that had praised her first steps, the same voice that shouted, get down from there when she climbed too high, the same voice that read her stories at night. And yet, with the poem, there was something different, something changed. When he read Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, his voice took on a different tone, a different rhythm, a cadence and tempo that lifted him into a different world. Her father's voice and a poem intermingled. And those same words, tiger, tiger, burning bright, transported her back to one year before. Tiger, tiger. This time it was five years old and at the zoo in what was called the large cat building. Five years old and surrounded not by family, but by strangers. She was lost and unable to find her dad, and her heartbeat began racing, and her panic began to grow. Tiger, tiger. And then that timber of her father's voice slicing through the crowd, his heartbeat rising, his voice strained. Tiger, tiger. That poem brought her back to that large cat building, to that five-year-old self and to her father's voice. And so Evan Boland asks, when was it that this poem began? Did it begin at six years old in her living room? Or did the poem begin the year before when she first saw that tiger? That tiger? Where does poetry begin? The words on the page and our first hearing of those words or maybe in our lived experience and our encounter with the world first, before the words of the poem even hit our ears. I think it's the same with scripture. As we read this scripture passage from today, love God and love neighbor, I wonder the same thing. Where does this scripture passage begin? 
Does it begin today when you heard it read aloud? Or does it begin somewhere more ancient, in some time before today? Back when your mother's voice, or your father's voice, or your grandfather's voice spoke those same words to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe this scripture passage began before you even heard it, back when your experience of God was precognitive, yet ever-present, the unspoken nearness of divine love present before anyone ever uttered the word God in your midst. Where does the scripture passage begin? Whose voice do you hear? The pastor of your childhood, your first Sunday school teacher? Do you hear even your own voice, written so deeply on your heart that you cannot separate your knowledge and your learning of it? What is the greatest commandment, the Pharaoh asks Jesus, trying, of course, to trick him. Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Where does this scripture passage begin? It begins long before today, long before today's struggles, mid-pandemic, mid-election cycle, mid-environmental crisis, long before today's struggle to love neighbor began to rise up in us. Loving our neighbor has always been an urgent and seemingly impossible task for decades and centuries and millennia even. We wouldn't come back to the straightforward, uncomplicated command if it was easy. If it was easy, we would just check it off our to-do list and never look back. But this is a demanding request. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus knew that when he responded to, the, to, the, um, to those who were questioning him. He knew love your neighbor was a ubiquitous, universal, persuasive, common, well-known, recognized, even orthodox understanding of our ethical duty. Love your neighbor. It's as if Jesus were asked, what is the most important rule in baseball? And instead of saying the most important rule is three strikes and you're out, which any lawyer could argue against, Jesus answered, take me out to the ball game. Root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Love of God and neighbor is our theological theme song of all Jewish and Christian writing, of all religious writing, really, if you look at the ethical underpinnings of world religions. Love God and neighbor is our bedrock, our cornerstone, our foundation. Love God and neighbor is heart and marrow and nucleus. Love God and neighbor is the meat and potatoes of our Christian vocation. This greatest commandment is found in three out of the four Gospels, and even John, whose Gospel does not include the greatest commandment, has more mentions of love than any other book in the Bible. So maybe you could say that the Gospel of John is just an extended essay on this, the greatest commandment. John is where you get, for God so loved the world. 
John is where you get, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. John is where you get, abide in my love. Now, biblical scholar Tom Long says that loving our neighbors, our real neighbors, the ones that come at us with jagged edges, is really ethically and humanly impossible. There's simply too much history, too many layers of deception and bitterness, too much risk in loving our neighbor. But, he says, with God, all things are possible. And it takes an act of God. It takes an experience of the love of God before love of neighbor can even begin to happen. So, loving your neighbor is an impossible possibility. Jesus leaves us with this ethical impossibility, a standard so high we can't reach it, with an ideal so beyond our ability to attain that we have been doomed to fail from the start. And it's easy to talk about the thousands of ways we have failed to love our neighbor. We can confess the hundreds of ways even this week that we have not loved our neighbor. And we've been struggling for centuries to figure it out. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus answers, love God and neighbor, the lawyer questioning Jesus chimes back, and who again is my neighbor? To which Jesus responds with a story. A man was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem up a steep mountain road, a dangerous road where robbers were likely to be hiding in wait. And that man traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem was attacked by robbers and left for dead. And along came a religious leader who passed him by. And along came another religious leader who passed him by. And finally, along comes the unexpected hero, the Samaritan, the one who everyone suspected was the antithesis of love your neighbor. And does he pass the, pass the man by? No, he binds up his wounds and carries him to the next town and pays for his treatment. That is the impossible, sacrificial, searching, and tender way to love your neighbor. So love your neighbor is as familiar to you as the grooves in the palm of your hands, as familiar as your mother's voice, as familiar as the tune, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Love your neighbor was there long before we could give voice to it. Love your neighbor was in its own way embedded even in this, our nation. Yes, we are in a season of critique about our nation's legacy, but love your neighbor, its impossible possibility, was a constant and abiding impossible dream that stood alongside the truth that all are created equal with unalienable rights. Love your neighbor was there when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, Love Your Neighbor was there when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Love Your Neighbor was there when New York City carved Emma Lazarus's 1883 words, 
into the base of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Love your neighbor was there when the Founding Fathers signed us up for the then and even still and always imperfect embodiment of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness that yet remains our common dream. Love Your Neighbor was there when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was proclaimed in 1948 by the United Nations. And Love Your Neighbor was right here around that same time at Kenilworth Union Church when we literally carved it in stone at the front of our church. Love Your Neighbor undergirds everything we hold dear. Love your neighbor is the way you treat your spouse, your children, your mother, your sister. Love your neighbor is your relationship with your boss and your employees. Love your neighbor is the way that you respond to the need of a stranger. Love your neighbor is the way you reach out in crisis. Love your neighbor is the impossible dream to which we set our hopes, especially today in the midst of a fraught political climate, in the midst of an ever-evolving pandemic, in the midst of an unfinished climate crisis, and in the midst of a longing for community to sit down at one another's tables and share a meal that even now remains an impossible possibility. Maybe even today, the simple, less impossibly demanding task of wearing your mask is that way of loving your neighbor. God writes the gospel not just in the Bible alone, but in our hearts, in our hands, in our very being. God writes within us a way of love that is possible, a love for our neighbor that is possible, only and especially when we tune our lives to the divine song that has been with us all along. Amen.